Hello. Welcome. Welcome. Good to see you guys. You had a hey good man, week? How's it going? Oh, nice to see you. Ah. Yeah, very good week. We had a baptismal service. Ah, oh, yes, you did. My goodness. Yeah, your church was yeah. so full. I saw some photos of that. Dang, that was crazy. It was like a revival. <laughs> all, of, yeah. all of New Zealand in there. A new building. It's already full. Did that music come through? Did you hear some guitar there? Yeah, I heard that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, What's yeah, going yeah. on there? That was just the riff. That was my... Um, <laughs> nah. We might we might start it up every now and again. We might. Oh yeah, it's a little bit of a little bit of an interlude. A little bit of banjo think, going on. Yeah, there. I like it. It's, like, it's actually sacred Hebrew music, just if anyone. Well. <laughs> okay. But we'll uh, we'll leave that out for now. Um, all right. So yeah, uh, you had a baptism. That's awesome. Andre, you just dropped out of the radar last week. Um, the oh yeah. Thing. Sorry about that. I yeah, had, a... had this wonderful <laughs> an conversation, and then it's just like it's oh, an well, emergency. Yeah. I was. Um, I just went on to check because I had uh, I had a YouTube. We we did an online. We did a virtual holiday club, right? Mm-hmm. But it was premiering live at nine every morning, so that people could join in and everybody was live and they could make comments in the chat. Although it turns out they couldn't because it was made for kids, and YouTube drops the chat for safeguarding purposes. So, oh, yeah. um, so that that's a lesson I learned. But the other thing was I I just quickly went on it like I don't know what time it was like I don't know ten to nine, uh, just to check that everything was okay. And it, the thing was on 14% uploaded. It had been on all night. So it obviously just got stuck somewhere oh, and gosh. then didn't upload. And I was like, oh no. And then I was having internet problems anyway. Like you guys were going all robotic and stuff. Now so one, more, thing- one more tech trouble there for you, bro. You're distorting. Have you been playing with that game again? What game? We already fixed your, your camera, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Is that is that better? I don't know. Uh, hang on. You, Let me check. Uh, yeah, is it distorting for you, Nick? No? No. Okay, it's coming across. Yeah, well, distorting. I've turned I've turned the game down. There we go. There we go. Yeah. The game. You just can't resist it. You're the one who told me to stick it up halfway. I had it on zero. I had the game on zero. You're the one saying stick it on halfway, Andre. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, don't listen to me. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Wasn't that nature? anyway? So that's why I left. Cool. All right, sweet. So another Sunday gone by, and we are um, moving along. So one of the things we uh, we wanted to talk about, we we mentioned last week um, that uh, Glory Cloud has uh, sort of uh, bid farewell. So we've got a little, one less Kleinian podcast out there. And in fact, and one has started up uh, that I'm very stoked about, um, Todd Bordeaux and um, and Kaisis. I mentioned that last time. Go check it out. If you listen to, uh, I think they got three up uh, up there, and um, it's great so far. Is he going to be like going through the works of Klein again, or is he just? I don't like think so. I think he, I, I like what he's doing. He's just kind of doing what we're doing, you know, sort of filtering it into ministry. And right. you know, he's he's been a pastor for a long time. He's just able to kind of bring bring that Kleinian spin to things. So I appreciate that. And um, but maybe that does leave a little bit more room to go through some texts. I was saying to Nick the other day, it might be a good idea to actually bring some client out and just uh, even if you know we've done it all on Glory Cloud already, you know, do it again. Um, and it'll just give a, a different angle on some things. And you know, perhaps we won't summarize things quite the way that they did. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I think just the more 
the more that's out there, you know, making the world a more clanian place. I'm, I'm happy with that. Um, so that might, that might come up uh, in future episodes. Um, do drop us a line if you're listening to this and there's anything particularly um, that, you, that you're keen to, to, to hear us uh, talk about. But um, one thing I did have in mind was structure of biblical authority. I think that's a great mm. and helpful work uh, mm. that Klein wrote to be able to just it's so diverse. It helps you do it, you know, get an overview of the Bible. It helps you understand canonicity issues. It's, you know, it's just uh, gets, gets your head around the ancient Near Eastern treaty side of things. So it's a, it's a great um, uh, book to open up with. Uh, it's a little bit difficult, so it'd be good to talk it through, but it's actually the best thing to start out if you wanted to get into, into climb. Um, but maybe as a, as a kind of precursor to that, um, um, I mentioned that I'm sort of rounding up or getting to the point of finalizing things on, on um, writing the dissertation. So I feel like now I, I haven't really spoken a lot about it. Um, obviously, it's been coming through and stuff that we have spoken about, but I've wanted to let my thoughts settle a bit. Uh, if anyone is interested, there was that one uh, interview that I did on Glory Cloud, which was kind of, I think I was more or less halfway or a little bit under halfway at that point. So um, a few of the ideas came through there, but you know, a lot has happened since. So it might be a good idea just to go through some of that. Um, and I, I don't think I've even at all mentioned what I'm even researching. So it might be you know, probably a good idea to do that on the, on the podcast. Um, and uh, we can interact with that more and more as we go. Um, so I think that's what we're going to do tonight. What do you think? Sound good? Sounds good. All right. So I'm going to give great, it a... Man. I have no idea what you're doing either. So this is I know. interesting. I did send it to Andre and, and I was like, I did well, start reading. I started reading it. I did. I was <laughs> like, hey, just, mind, Mike, I have my own essays to do it. I haven't done them yet. Man, that was like the most unhelpful feedback. In fact, it was not. It was anti-feedback. It was, it was just like, it was, it was like a promise. It was true it was, feedback. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was negated by the prefix r <laughs> it was r feedback, <laughs> r feedback. <laughs> um, oh all right so uh, i'll give a quick run through and this all this is kind of um i don't think i've been able to do this up until this point in terms of a full step-by-step process and now i've reached uh, the end so this is hopefully um a good little indicator and you know we'll leave some of the details out if anyone does want to get more into this um hopefully it will be out there in pdf or something um kindle or whatever it is or maybe it'll be a hundred dollar book that you can buy uh, from some book random university <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so uh you know i'm sure there'll be ways and means of accessing it later on but um so the title of the the dissertation is a bit of a mouthful <clears throat> and a good party trick um a dialectic inquiry concerning Meredith Klein's covenant theology as architectonic substructure of the reformed two kingdom project. So, uh, you know, try to say Mike, that. Could, you, could you hit me baby one more time? Yeah, we'll do. Uh, let me, uh, obviously it's about covenant theology. That's the big, the big deal. The, the dialectic inquiry I'll talk about in a second. That's a, that's the methodology, but uh, it's about, you know, reformed covenant theology as we know, and it's about Klein as the covenant theologian. So it's essentially uh, about that. Uh, and that's the the main point of focus. But it's not just randomly; it's not just presenting client just you know in his um, covenant theology. It's it's in connection to to the reformed two kingdom uh, doctrine, and uh, and really looking at at the relationship of client's covenant theology and the way that it forms. And I've used the word architectonic substructure. And the reason uh, all that all that that means is that it's sort of um, um, if you've ever heard of um, reformed theology. Uh, making use of the term architectonic to talk about 
covenant theology. And what they mean there is, uh, you know, the, the covenant theology is the architectonic principle for reformed theology of the Westminster Confession, for example. It's just yeah. the, the thing that brings all the dominant theological ideas together. It forms like, if you imagine a, uh, you know, uh, a foundation, it, it, it forms the substructure for the superstructure that gets built upon it. And, um, and obviously all at a conceptual level. So um, it's that, that obviously there's some relationship with uh, Klein and, and the Two Kingdom Project, but uh, really what I'm wanting to examine is to, the, what, to what degree does it serve as a valid substructure and an architectonic principle for that whole project? That's, that's what the, the dissertation is uh, essentially about. Uh, for I think most who, who are listening to this will know what the Reform Two Kingdom Project is, uh, but just in case you're kind of a little bit misty on that one, um, the, the idea is that it falls as a subset within the broader Two Kingdom paradigm. And uh, I've tried to be careful with my use of paradigm and project there, because I think it's true to say that from the very beginning, uh, you know, from the Nick and I went through some of these uh, a while back, but, you know, the, the Didache, the Epistle to Diognetus, the, you know, Galatius' two-sword theory, uh, Augustine, City of God, they're all part of this rubric that tries to find the church's place in culture. How is it common with culture? How is it? set in antithesis to culture and this is all part of the two kingdom paradigm ultimately it's just a way to kind of build that out and i think you see all the way through to you know certainly lutheranism but but um beyond that even to kyperianism it's just with these fear sovereignty it's just a way to go how is the church in the world that's all that is and um van Druden has obviously done uh, quite a massive study on that historically and to show uh, where that how that uh, falls and you know where the reformed theology sits in light of that but the reformed two kingdom project is like another subset of that paradigm and specifically within uh reformed thought so uh, it, it moves away from lutheran thought in that luther dealt with the issue you know in terms of ontology and anthropology you've got the inner reality of your standing before god you've got this outer world uh that you live before uh, you know among and and uh, in the midst of before god quorum deo Whereas Reformed theology, as we know, kind of moved away from Lutheranism with its covenant historical approach to, to exegesis and covenant theology itself that developed out of that. And it was, you know, Reformed theology tended to take the law and gospel contrast and turn that into a covenant of works, covenant of grace contrast. And, um, and with that came this, um, this development of the two kingdom paradigm, which was different from Luther's. So uh, the Reformed two kingdom project is just not only a subset of that reformed idea and the covenant idea, but it, it really is specifically built upon uh, a particular version of that covenant idea as it's mm. built out of Vossian biblical theology and really, <clears throat> I think, most sharply defined by Klein, as we'll see. So, uh, you know, that's basically, again, just to try and define some terms there and set it up, that's more or less what, what we're looking at. Uh, we've looked at, uh, you know, it's no secret in terms of uh, this, this uh, what we talk about regularly on the podcast. I mean, I'm like a massive fan of Klein. I've always appreciated uh, his work uh, for a very long time, Vassian Biblical Theology, Two-Age Sojourner. That's the name of our podcast. But I suppose what was interesting to me was just that no one has really looked at this. You know, we've, Klein's name always gets flung around. Um, and we know the debate gets, gets ugly, you know, on the Two Kingdom side. Um, or at least two kingdom both near Calvinist uh, uh, squabble. But 
but you know, and clan's name gets, he's the, he's the grandfather of, of, of the, the two kingdom thing. And then of course, you know, Doyavert would be the, the grandfather of the neo-Calvinist thing. Uh, but to what degree is that certain? And, you know, I started to come across a few journal articles that had actually pinpointed that as a problem saying, you know, no one's actually looked at his, at the substructure. No one's actually seen the degree of its connection, which is uh, really a glaring omission. Probably the one who came closest to doing that was, um, well, there was, there was uh, a neo-Calvinist critique. Um, ben Miller did something, but, you know, probably in more detail in, in connection with the broader Two Kingdom project, John Frame's name is, has been uh, mentioned a few times on the podcast, and that's because he's written a full-scale critique of the Two Kingdom project, uh, the Escondido theologians that, that came out of Klein's, you know, lecturing and ministry, um, and looked at Klein as well in that context, uh, in relation to that Two Kingdom context. So he's probably come the closest, but, you know, I mean, it wasn't well received, that critique. It, it hasn't really stimulated the discussion that I think Frame wanted it to stimulate. So it's, it's only worsened the glaring. Well, it's just emphasized that there's, there's more work to do then. So I thought, okay, cool. Let's jump in there and let's see if that proposal flies. And, um, and after, you know, doing a bit of a preliminary uh, uh, literature review, it, it turned out that was, that was good. So that's what I've been working with. Um, Obviously, it has a lot of. A so lot sorry, of Mike. How yeah. long ago did this start? I mean, that was. Um, what's, what's the timeline on this? Yeah, probably about two years ago for for the actual, um, you know, for the 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 actual begin the formal beginning. But I think you know, you guys know, Klein's been on the radar a lot longer for me and the Two Kingdom issue. Yeah. So I, I remember reading through uh, Frame's book when it came out. What was that 2012 or something? So you know, that it's been around for a while. And uh, it's been on my mind. So I've, I've had it, I suppose I had a bit of a head start in, in the reading, which was good, you know, and thankfully so, because it's been a lot of reading since then. Um, yeah. But the, uh, I think, you know, we all feel this, as, uh, you're in the UK, we're in the New, uh, New Zealand context. So we're, we're, we're not in the States and we know what it's like to live in a secular situation. We know that it's important to know how you need to engage culture. Um, if you don't yeah. know, you know, maybe you feel like you have a shot at it in, in the States or in some sort of Christian area, maybe South Africa was similar uh, to get out there and redeem politics and so forth. But I think it becomes more of a how on earth would that even happen if we just, you know, if we decide to go down that road or should we go down that road? It becomes a very, uh, very important issue for anyone in ministry, any church, any Christian. So there's a lot of significance there. And then I'm hoping just in not only to provide some help. Uh, and clarity on, on thinking of uh, thinking through that process. But I think the, the anything that would help the squabble between the neo-Calvinists and the, and the two kingdom guys, anything that overcomes impasse and creates um, a way to just talk about it without getting so heated, I think would be helpful. And so mm. uh, one of the big hopes I had was that I'd find something. And I am quite excited. I think I do have something that is, you know, based on Klein's work, that there might be something worth considering for future research that could really help. Uh, but we'll get to that in a moment. Um, in terms of... Uh, Mike, just just yeah. a one, one point. You mentioned the word neo-Calvinist a few times. Could you yeah. just remind us what you mean by that? Yeah, good. So neo-Calvinist, um, uh, neo-Calvinism is really the the offshoot of, um, again, a reformed culture appropriation paradigm or culture engagement paradigm um, that, that comes from Abraham Kuyper through mediated through Doyavit, um, which is uh, really very much set against any form of dualism. So it doesn't like 
uh, like just coming out of, of Doyovit there, I mean, Doyovit was set against much of what, what Luther stood for in his law gospel antithesis, much of what, um, much of what uh, Kuiper stood for in his sphere sovereignty and, and separation of common grace and, and the church. And, and, uh, and really just saw all of that as a kind of compromise. You know, he saw the, that his whole big reading of history is that uh, you had Aquinas and, um, you know, uh, all of the medieval theologians that really synthesized Greek thought with Christianity and, and, and uh, ruined the beautifully monistic ground motive that Christianity presents from which to understand um, all of life. And, and so for, for Doyavid and for Doyavidians and for what they're called now, neo-Calvinists, if you put them in that category, um, they are, um, you know, very, very concerned to see um, the way that we approach life is just the scripture is applied to all equally. Uh, every, every sphere is considered uh, a, the possible um, area in which the kingdom can be built. And then you have more extreme forms of it, like theonomy, which applies it to politics and, um, mm. you know, and then perspectivalism, which we'll talk about with, with frames, unique kind of rendition. So maybe a, a, how would you sort of give a taxonomy yeah, of the taxonomy, landscape? Yeah. Yeah. So I know Alvin Plantinga and Nicholas Boltersdorfer up there somewhere in yep. the neo-Calvinist yep. movement. Yep. You've got a sort of Tim Keller-ish, more reformed edge, Mm-hmm. Then you've got maybe new perspective on Paul, which has similarities, but they wouldn't call themselves neo-Calvinists, but their their program yeah. is very similar. How would you Don't sort overlap. of map out the landscape of the, the neo-Calvinist? Well, you know, thankfully, I haven't had to do that um, because okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that would be a big job. But uh, I've come close with, um, with needing to form some sort of taxonomy in relation to those in the neo-Calvinist camp who've responded to Klein and whom Klein's responded with and the, the interlocutors of Klein, basically. And, um, and so I think that was hard enough because... You know, as so this you say, is Mike's. This is Mike Beck's taxonomy. It is, and yeah, and I, I put it forward. Uh, you know, I, I think it works for my purposes. I'm not sure that I would want to see it as the official sort of taxonomy out there, but, but, um, you know, obviously Klein had much to do with the uh, theonomists. That's and, and really that interaction gives grounds for pretty much what the New Kingdom guys, uh, sorry, at least two Kingdom guys, are um, are all about in their discussions with you know Calvinists. So it's very connected. Um, so, uh, you know, it's really less a taxonomy of neo-Calvinism and more, uh, more a taxonomy of transformationalism, you might say, or, or um, an approach, a one kingdom, you know, uh, approach to, to uh, Christ and culture. And, um, and so I've, I've put the theonomists in a category of their own. And really, I see that. And I've, I've made a small argument that, that theonomy can be considered theonomists themselves especially the more contemporary ones think of themselves as neo-calvinists as kinds of neo-calvinists that um that apply uh, may, maybe more on the extreme end of the covenantal continuity spectrum and uh are, are, are focused on the political application of that neo-calvinistic uh, uh, one kingdom agenda um and then you have uh, on the other side of the spectrum um, quite a, a big range, but let's just call these the neo-Doyavidians, you know, um, or, or just simply neo-Calvinists, but Doyavidians, I think I have them, because they are most faithful, they're most concerned with the more philosophical ends, the, the monistic elements, the, um, the uh, you know, the, the issue of um, seeing, uh, 
the the kingdom uh, really the cosmo i don't want to get into uh this whole uh neck of the woods but uh cosmonomic um arguments or um Doyavet had this whole yes uh cosmonomology <laughs> um and and basically his whole idea just to quickly give you a quick rundown so this makes sense um you know the whole thing with creation is that you had to discover Adam's task was to essentially discover the laws of the cosmos, you know, cosmonomic and, um, and to, and to build those and to con continue with them and to really develop culture um, much like Klein talks about, you know, in, in the development of uh, megapolis, but you know, this was the big task. And so uh, the task of the Christian is, and, and he saw this falling, not on the theologian, but the philosopher actually, um, yeah. is to is to build a big worldview understanding that is philosophically monistic based on a, on a structural monism and um, and is able to develop culture in the way that Adam should have you know by discovering the philosophical cosmonomic laws you know so it's a, it's mm -hmm. a big discussion and almost a thing on its on its <clears throat> own but um, that would be one side of the spectrum uh, of, of those that that uh, Klein deals with and then right in the middle I would say uh, is the uh, you could call them the perspectivalists, but really we have John Frame in view primarily um, in that he is, um, he considers him, he's really halfway to theonomy on, on many issues, but not a theonomist. And he doesn't want to necessarily group himself with the neo-Calvinists, but he, he, he's, he follows the same agenda, except on a different methodological basis. So his philosophical uh, thing is not so much a, a structural monism, as was the case with uh, Doyavet, his thing is this, you know, these this perspectival methodology that yeah. he's worked out, and and for him, you know, it's it, the application of scripture to all of life via a perspectival methodology uh, is, you know, what it means to follow uh, God as the covenant Lord, and so his view necessitates a one kingdom transformationalist near calvinist sort of understanding so th those are the three groupings they're not entirely the same so i've kind of kept them in separate categories and yet they're all ultimately transformationalist one kingdom and uh, I, I would put them all ultimately in the broader near calvinist uh, uh, spectrum but there's some there's something i'll say towards the end that challenges that idea and um maybe we need to come back to that um but in terms of the, so how this works, right? In terms of the research process is that you've got to have a main research question that you're answering. And then you've got to have a decent methodology to get you there. And, you know, you have these little benchmarks as you answer these subsidiary research questions along the way. So you'll find whenever you read a dissertation, that's more or less how it goes. So the main research question is uh, in what ways does Meredith Klein's covenant theology offer a valid architectonic substructure for the reformed two kingdom project coming straight out of that title of the dissertation. All right. So I'm looking at a, at the whole thing from a dialectic um, uh, inquiry methodology, which is great, um, you know, for the, for the purposes of the study, because it allows a, um, you know, it allows both perspectives to engage properly. It, um, it allows a, a legitimate exploration. That's the thing that's, it's, it's not sort of a, uh, just a defense of one view. It, it allows me to really study and think about it as I'm going, which I appreciated. And um, obviously, you know, there's some part of it there that allows, at least keeps the door open for some level of synthesis. Maybe, maybe it's true that you hit gold and you're able to, to, uh, you know, discover a way to reconcile some of the problems. And so at least that mm. methodology allows you to get there, but essentially, uh, you know, uh, you got this literary overview as, as, a, as a first step. 
um, and then to present the thesis, which is Klein's Covenant Theology, and then to uh, start seeing the dialectical analysis happen. So that's where you take Klein's thought and you see how he responds to other covenantal paradigms. And then you see, you flip it on its head essentially, and uh, you look at the dialectical analysis of the antithesis, which is everyone speaking against Klein and, um, and you know, take, take their critique seriously and, uh, and analyze it. And then you step back from Klein and his interlocutors and look at, you know, whatever, whatever surfaces, I hadn't pinned this down before I'd started, but whatever surfaces as the main issue to look at through a, a thorough biblical theological examination. So it turned out that the, the, the real big thing, um, which I suppose is somewhat to be expected is, you know, all these views against Klein hold to a continuous, uh, continuationist uh, cultural uh, understanding of the cultural mandate. And Klein, I would say, is a non-continuationist in that you have a difference there. We're not, we're not understanding that we have to do uh, what Adam uh, was doing. There's some level of discontinuity yeah. there, whereas they would all see us as the church picking uh, Adam's mandate up in some way, shape or form. Um, and so uh, I looked at the cultural mandate starting in Genesis, worked it all the way through to Revelation. And that was a bit of a beast, but uh, got that done. And uh, and now I'm looking at the final step, which is the evaluation of it all. So it brings the dialectic analysis together with the biblical evaluation and takes a look at all the critique and uh, via the proce process of retro uh, deduction, <laughs> looks at all, all of the things and, and, and moves to uh, formulate. Uh, an evaluation and hypothesis. So, um, in terms of uh, just just giving a super super quick lay of the land as to some of the findings, I'll jump through all the reasoning processes and just give you some end end uh, points here. Uh, when presenting Klein's covenant theology, I think it was helpful to find some lucid, like why is Klein actually connected to the reform taking a project? What is it about that edge in his theology that that makes it? glued to this thing and um, I think I've got some lucid answers there the answer is because um, of his view of well it's three things but firstly his view of the the fetus operum the the covenant of works and the pactum salutis the covenant of redemption uh, he understands those things as parallel and connected his famous law priority in other words what what Christ was doing was actually what Adam was doing, or at least he was fulfilling what Adam initially was supposed to do in the covenant of works, which included a cultural task. Um, and so, you know, the fact that Christ has come to do that now means that for us to be taking up, you know, any elements of the cultural task is almost like saying we're taking some elements of the works-based covenant. Uh, and so it really has this very close, and this is why it gets so uh, vociferous sometimes when you see the debate happen, because it, you know, it's about justification, usually uh, very, the gospel into it very yeah. close by. Yeah, exactly. And you see that with the theonomists, certainly. And uh, even today with the with the, uh, the ongoing polemic with neo-Calvinists. But um, so that's the first reason. The second reason is that he's got this doctrine of uh, uh, common grace that runs alongside uh, the fetus gratia. So the covenant of grace. And so you see this very clear cultic boundary emerge uh, where you've got the redemptive kingdom and you've got the common grace kingdom and Klein obviously has a, a very detailed way to bring that out of, of exegesis and biblical theology uh, that's part of his covenant system and, and his understanding of, of that which subserves the, 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 the fulfillment of Christ's mission in history um, you know God must give common grace thirdly um, 
you see, obviously, this is the big one everyone knows time for, but it is a, it is a factor. He sees the, the Mosaic uh, Covenant as a republication of mm. the Covenant of Works, the, the Fetus Operum. And, um, and this is significant because if that's true, then obviously it's, it's all in the realm of typology. It's showing us how Adam has failed. It's showing us how Christ would succeed. And it's taking it right off the table. In Israel as any sort of example for the church today uh, in terms of cultural engagement paradigms. And this is significant because you see often in the literature, people go, well, you know, Israel, we're doing this, Israel, we're doing this. And even if they're not thinking in theonomy terms, they're thinking basic sort of broad categories, like, well, they were, you know, they were feeding the poor, they were doing this, they were, uh, you know, God commanded Israel to uh, protect the widows and so forth. And so this, it all just expands on our understanding of, of what the church's mission is, but he just takes it right off the table and, and he goes, that's, that's unique. That's typology. That's eschatological intrusion. That's uh, a republication of the, of the fetus mm. So there's, you know, with those, those three things, I think make it unavoidable um, that, that Klein's theology yeah. connects or at least gives rise to the reform to kingdom project. So I heard yeah. uh, just a, a quick anecdotal thing. Hmm. I heard that, um, in the OPC, uh, client put forward a, a minority report on why uh, <clears throat> missions shouldn't in, involve building hospitals and medical yeah, missions. Exactly. And that's just with a view to trying to keep the gospel the main thing. Yes. And not trying you know, to, to hitch it to, to cultural stuff. And, you know, on a, on a sort of functional level, you know, if, if all else fails, you just have to look at that article that he wrote or that, that uh, proposal that he, that he put forward as almost like, you know, even though it's anachronistic to think of Klein as thinking of himself as a two kingdom proponent guy, because it wasn't really around when he was, you know, he, which I'm going to come back to uh, soon enough. Um, when he put that proposal forward, he really preempted something that you see later on in, in Horton's gospel um, commission or whatever that book is called that, you know, where he writes about the church's mission. I think it is called gospel commission, popular level book, but it really is an expansion of exactly what Klein was saying in that article. So, you know, yeah. you, the, at that functional endpoint level, yeah. you see very Klein, practical Klein yeah. is getting there uh, with his theology. Um, so taking that thesis then and presenting it or subjecting it to the beginnings of a dialectical analysis, the next step was to go, all right, now, how does this respond? How does Klein take this and respond to different covenantal paradigms? So he did respond to the theonomists. We you know, have some very strenuous writings on uh, of Klein's part there. Uh, uh, he, he was no, he was no, uh, he did not back away from controversy. Um, and then you have him speaking just, to, just as uh, energetically to, to frame and the, and, and uh, Poitras and the perspectivalists. And uh, thirdly, he uh, does in his kingdom prologue deal in a really profound section of, of kingdom prologue. I feel uh, with Doyavet uh, and, and with the, with the neo as he calls them which is really which i've argued are he doesn't give any footnotes in kingdom prologue which is like leaves a lot of guesswork but <laughs> i've argued that it's 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 really what we are to he called it neo-doyavidianism because he wanted to think of himself in terms of kyperian thought and uh and you get a paleo-doyavidianism which or a or a neo uh or a paleo-kyperianism even which is is, is, is really more faithful to Kuiper, not Doyavid. And so I think he was thinking in those terms, which I think is quite helpful when we come back on that. Um, mm. Then um, looking at uh, the way that those compare and contrast, what's interesting is that Klein is by far the clearest in using a Vassian biblical theological 
methodology or hermeneutic. Yeah. Um, so you just see that shine as you compare. Um, you see in Klein, he is the only one who's really able to hold up a, a, a very clear works grace antithesis. So if that is yeah. a priority in theology, the, Klein is the only one that really has given a covenantal model to be able to do that. Mm. Um, thirdly, um, the, he's got the clearest, of course, and this is no surprise, the clearest distinction between the cultural mandate, uh, which is, I'm thinking now of the Noahic, you know, post-fall refracted cultural mandate and uh, the great commission of the church. He, he has a way, his whole system uh, has a way of bringing those two together in the Christian, but keeping them very clearly distinguished in the church itself. And then fourth, uh, another thing that's quite obvious as you start going through all this is that Klein of all the models is least favorable towards any philosophical abstraction of any sort. He, he's a very hardline biblical data guy and uh, the other models tend to move in either perspectival philosophical approach um, or, uh, you know, David with his uh, monism, monism which, which yeah. really just moved him uh, at the end of the day. Um, uh, and so then t once that's in place, you know, we took the, the dialectical side to its antithesis and bringing all, all the responders. Um, each of those guys have responded or each, each, a representative from each of those groups has responded to Klein in some way, shape or form. So I've looked at that uh, there. What you see is um, a, a really a conglomerate attack on Klein's orthodoxy, reformed orthodoxy, and maybe sometimes <laughs> Christian orthodoxy. Yeah. Um, you know, they don't, they don't think he has a place in the reformed tradition uh, frame, for example, wants to put him in Lutheranism. Um, he's just, ostracized him completely because luther not only uh is 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 klein unbiblical for their reason but so is luther <laughs> and and so just they they don't want to see any of uh, of that um you've got uh with with bonson of course he's just uh he's really and even contemporary theonomist gentry i've looked a lot at gentry as a modern sort of proponent of what bonson was saying and he makes a very very long case to show that you know he actually makes a good historical case i would argue even probably an accurate historical case that Klein is is not in the mainstream of reformed thought. You know, it just gives example after example that the, the covenantal continuity that's been such a priority um, with with reformed theology was really shattered when Klein comes along with these two canon concept and mm. and you know thinks about it in, in a completely different way. So he improved reformed thought. Well, you know what I <laughs> what I've said is that you know all of the arguments for against these orthodoxies place in reformed orthodoxy is uh, they're all overstated. You know, Doyevet comes along with the dualism angle and wants to see, they want to see him in in kind of a if not Gnosticism then Roman Catholicism or something like that. Um, but you know these are all overstated, and I've, I've tried to argue that you know I think uh, Doyevet, for example, is a very idiosyncratic understanding of what dualism is and he applies it very inconsistently when it suits him so uh, you know i don't think that does push klein out of the the, the field there um with with i think uh, with frame you've got luther and klein there are some periphery or at least some um, superficial connections there with the two kingdom paradigm but you know as we were saying earlier luther's approaching the whole thing in a completely different way and uh, really luther's model can operate quite well in constantinianism um so that just gives you an indication of how different they are where where klein's model is completely covenant historical it doesn't work it doesn't play well with constantinianism at all and so you know you've you've got those things um mm. in play there uh so there's no legitimate issue of orthodoxy at play but there is what that does bring out is klein is definitely a minority report within the reformed yeah. tradition um what about shepherd didn't klein take shepherd on 
Yeah. Did Shepard respond? Was he one one of the interlocutors? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So so Shepard uh, is is a key player in that he, um, especially you know, you think about Murray, um, who basically uh, developed a, a covenant theology against Klein's formulation, or, or at least uh, different too, um, because he didn't want to keep this works grace antithesis as clearly set out as Klein did in the, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. He didn't even want to think of a covenant of works um, prior to the fall. He, he wanted to started to develop the beginnings of a mono covenantalism really. And, um, and so thankfully uh, Murray was able to keep a very sharp works, grace, antithesis and doctrine of justification. But you know, he, he, he had to, he himself admitted that he was revived. He was being the revisionist. Um, in, in moving in the way that he was going from covenant John Murray. theology, John Murray, yeah, yeah. Um, but thankfully, was upholding inconsistently, uh, um, but but still upholding this justification idea. It was only a house of cards, though, because then Shepard comes along afterwards, and um, you know he's really just being <clears throat> faithful to what Murray's saying there, and starts to move that into some of his own workings in James, and uh, you know some of the exegetical stuff he had come up with. And tries to reformulate justification, and um, and so you know that then plays into the theonomy debate because although theonomy is about something else, it, it you know if if you're going to say the Mosaic law is completely of a piece with the new covenant, then you have to you need a, a covenantal model that will support that. And Murray gives that to you, but of course you want the consistent version, which is Shepherd's. And um, and you see towards the end of Bonson's life, I mean, I've got some quotes from um, uh, Theonomy and Christian Ethics by Bonson that uh, set your hair on edge. But it's kind of um, you know he sees already going there, but by the end of his life, uh, he was he was uh, in defensive of Shepherd. And uh, this is you know after the controversy. Wow. So, you know, they, they definitely, theonomists have since moved in that direction. And, um, and that's why it just gels again. It becomes almost like a, like a grandchild to uh, federal vision <laughs> and, and, and some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, but I mean, what what amazes is, me is, <clears throat> sorry, Andre, go ahead. Oh, no, no, you carry on. Yeah, I'll, I was going to say what amazes me is just that how, you know, the polemical context, the fact that there's the fighting, the fact that there's the exchanges, the fact that there's the give and take, it just sharpens the point. Yes. And I love what Luther said. He said, I, I think clearly when I'm angry, yes. as you can imagine these men just getting a hold of these things and it just advances our understanding and, and takes absolutely. us so much deeper into the issues. You know, yeah. So I think these, that context is critical. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, think, I, think, I think it was Mu that said this. Someone, someone along the way said, you can, we can all really be thankful for, for the theonomy movement at that level because, you know, it forced some amazing clarity out of, uh, out of some <laughs> theologians on the issue of law and gospel and, uh, you know, the way it relates to any sort of covenant theology. And, so, you know, I think it was, um, um, uh, who was it now? Uh, David T. Gordon, I think, who said, uh, you know, you, you've got, it's almost like there's this latent tension in the Westminster that was waiting to become the enemy or something like it. If someone wasn't going to deal with this issue at, a, at, at the covenant historical level, if, you know, because there's some statements there that just can't help it. And, and you see the theonomists that they appeal to, to the Westminster, yeah. you know, and Klein was willing to give them that at some level go, you know what, you're probably right. Um, so yeah, it is interesting to see how it just brings out this, this amazing clarity. Um, but uh, that's got to be you, a factor. Klein's, yeah. Klein's you know, he, he seemed, he seemed willing to to revise the Westminster and say, actually, this yeah. isn't quite right. Yeah. And that's got to be a factor in why some reformed folk 
are are going to recoil at that yeah. because you know there is this view of the Westminster standards, and and not just not just with Westminster with 1689 with everything that yeah. basically it's a kind of magisterium that you you have to you know yeah. have to submit to and at a functional level is at least equated with scripture but yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and but you know it's interesting because a lot of the stuff you've said about Klein you see now being leveled against Horton as well mm -hmm. exactly um, yeah. You know, yeah, all the stuff like oh, he's a Lutheran and mm -hmm. oh, he's not really reformed and all that, all that kind of stuff. But like, so where you know, um, Durbin and James White and that are they good sort of modern examples or contemporary examples of of like a neo-Calvinist today? Yeah, well, I mean, Durbin is a. a he is a post-millennialist. I think the thing is that that's an interesting, it's almost like the emphasis from everything I haven't seen or read a lot of what James Durbin has said, but from everything I know, um, you know, that's a good example. I think he calls himself a theonomist. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me, but it, it seems eschatologically driven. Whereas with, um, with the theonomists um, that we're, we're talking about here, it, it, that, that was, you know, if, in fact, Bonson makes a point of keeping the uh, eschatology out of it. Um, you know, he wants to see it uh, developed on a covenantal uh, continuity. So he wants to see the old, you know, he wants to see us speak of the church as, as Israel in every true sense, uh, because it is one covenant of grace with, with, you know, just only the most yeah. periphery sense of, of, of discontinuity. Um, you know, and just Durban is a Baptist. I know that. So I know that he doesn't do that. <laughs> you know, so I know that that's not his agenda. And I think, you know, interestingly, this is like a whole nother field, but I think that it's a, if, if, um, James White and uh, is it James Durbin? I'm having a blank here. Jeff Durbin. Jeff Durbin. That's it. Uh, Jeff Durbin are able to, um, not, not go, uh, problematic in in their theonomy or, or post-millennialism and what i mean by that is start messing around with justification and so forth um then it's a something of a a testimony to the power of baptistic reasoning in forming a, a delimiter to to what this the, the the damage this can do because it really once you you know, you'll always have to have some sense of discontinuity as a Baptist and really quite profoundly. So if you're going to land on the fact that we're not employing the, the covenant sign in the mm -hmm. same way, and that's, that's just going to have a kind of boundary for you in terms of the way you're, you're going to apply your theonomy because theonomy, you know, is, is really, I mean, it, at, at its best, it's just an attempt to apply God's law seriously, you know, and take it, take God's word seriously. And, you know, uh, namas law, you know, that's all it is. It's just, you're wanting to, you're either under autonomy or theonomy. And, and so which one do you want, you know, and any presuppositionalist is going to have some sort of draw to this uh, as we know they are. And so anyways, there, there's all of that in place. Um, but when, when it just tying that back into to, to some of the things that it came out of the literary review is that uh, you see the Baptist uh, critique on this is very interesting. And you see the theonomists against Klein group Klein with the Baptists, which I find quite, quite uh, interesting. Hey man, bring him home. Bring yeah. Him home. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> for exactly these reasons though, you know, because, because, you know, they see Klein doing essentially what the Baptists did, you know, for them, they want aspects this of this continuity in key places. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, you, you know, call yourself a Presbyterian if you want to, but you're, you're a Baptist in our view is what they're saying. Um, so I, I find that quite interesting. And, you know, when, when they wrote a book, their first, uh, this, uh, this uh, symposium that, that became a book, uh, it was, it was entitled 
uh, critique or uh, I can't remember the exact title now, but the, the failure of American Baptist culture and Klein's uh, listed as one of the people that are being critiqued on his view of, of, of uh, the covenant signs. So uh, it's kind of, um, you see that come through at a few points. And of course, as Baptists, um, I think we're sensitive to seeing that, you know, it, Sam Waldron, for example, uh, makes the plea that everyone just be very fair to Bonson because, you know, Bunsen's only being consistent with his own hermeneutic to some degree. And, uh, you know, everyone, everyone's wanting to go against him so much, but really, isn't he making a good point that, that, it, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so he's trying to, he's trying to bring the Baptist agenda in there. Uh, so you had all sorts of interesting little bits along the way. And of course, you know, even just at a historical level, who are the big two kingdom proponents historically? The only ones that really do this consistently are the Presbyterian spirituality of the church guys, um, but 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 even there, you can see they just struggled, you know, to to pull this off, and were basically in in, yeah. in complete warfare within themselves on this issue. Whereas Baptists were forced into a kind of separation of church and state; they had to live as two kingdom. Uh, they had to figure it out. Uh, and yeah, so really really amazing articles written about that. But Paul Helm, for example, laments that that's not dealt with more, you know. And um, this, they really historically are the the contributing voice rather than. Um, that, that have been left out, especially when we think about reform circles and covenantal circles and so forth. But, you know, all, all of that is kind of uh, side discussion. It does come through at one, one level or another in the, in the dissertation, but just coming back to some of these endpoints, um, as a result of all this push for covenantal continuity, the, the, the effect on the cultural piece is that you're going to hold to a continuationist view of the cultural mandate, mm. of course, because it's just one big covenant that's reapplied essentially. And uh, though theonomists and Dovidians and, and uh, Frame have different ways of getting there via their covenant, covenantal nuances, effectively that's what's going on in each of those yeah. cases. They want continuity, and obviously when you consider the mandate, that's continuous from beginning to end. So, so the that, cultural mandate and the Great Commission are hitched. That's right. And yeah. uh, the restoration of the image and sanctification are hitched, and yeah. all, of, all of the baggage of Adam's job hitched yeah. onto that. Well, you know, even more, it's like a revival it's not even hitched it's it it is the the cultural mandate revived you know it's now yeah. the the mandate that that adam ruined because of sin that we now get to, this is in many ways the good news there are some shocking statements like that uh, that that are made that seem to really undermine the soteriological side of uh, of the great commission because it's almost like they're giving primary place to to the good news of our ability now to restore the cosmos to its former glory rather than, you know, being delivered from wrath. Um, yeah. You know, which, which so, is, so uh, are they seeing, are they seeing the, 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 the cultural mandate and the great commission related in the sense that the great commission is making disciples who will then fulfill the, the cultural mandate, or is it, is it more, is it sort of more intimately connected than that? Are they going what, so far as to say the, 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 the the great commission um you know basically is the cultural mandate or well jesus both great... jesus both healed and preached so when you go out yeah. go do as jesus did go, go to incarnational ministry help the poor so, and so they're the happening gospel. alongside each other well the that's one version the, of it the, yeah exactly the yeah, one no, word... well that's what i'm getting at so yeah. what, 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 is the, what is the kind of spectrum what yeah. does the kind of spectrum of views look like yeah with yeah. that no, that's, uh, yeah, they can't be grouped together exactly. Um, and so you see exactly what Nick was saying there, uh, you know, just a, almost like a John Stott approach, you know, why, 
why would you even consider separating these things? They are one in the same, you know, it's the same, it's the same, uh, you know, would you love just the whole person, love the whole person, just exactly. their souls, you yeah. know? So, so a lot of them take that approach and that I'd put more in the Dovidian category. And then the perspectivalist, I think John frames come out with some, you know, a very um, specific things to say. He wants to see them as different, but, but, but merged, you know, and, and improved upon, so to speak. Um, so with John frame, you know his whole thing and this comes into uh, Klein's critique of his uh, methodology but you know effectively he's bringing his normative uh, you know perspective his situational perspective and his existential perspective all on equal grounds and equal footing so when it comes to his reading of biblical theology what happens is um, he'll coordinate the the normative which is the you know contained in the word with the situational um, and and he will you know, rather than see a unique situation in Israel as part of the norm, he'll uh, see that as but one application of the norm uh, <laughs> that needs to be reapplied in various other situations. So, at least, norm. Yeah, yeah, it becomes a very tricky business. And uh, I think people have rightly pointed out that it actually effectively removes our ability to interpret the Bible. Yeah, Kahlberg, for example, says, you know, can you even speak of biblical theology under under frames perspective in any sense you know can you speak of james's theology can because it's all one big timeless norm that's being reapplied without any view to the situational distinctions going on there and it's being applied through the lens of the existential um uh, uh, you know approach to hermeneutics so it just gets very very nebulous very quickly but um what i was saying there is that you know he he would see the idea of the gospel commission being alongside the the great commission uh i sorry uh, the cultural, cultural uh, mandate, mandate uh, from the beginning you know so it's just that it's now being reapplied but it's not the same thing but it's just it's it's you know it's it's an it's a continuation of that um so israel had the mandate to be a light to the nation so forth so it's nothing new we're just doing that and we're doing the cultural piece which they also had to do everything just gets situationally reapplied yeah. Um, based on that timeless principle um, and then you have uh, maybe the most sort of rigid view being uh, Bonson who does who does see the, uh, the the two as different the great commission as you know he does uh, you know and this he gives lip service to evangelism all the time because I think he knows you know that he was going to take a lot of critique but the problem is you know he would come up with things like well you know because Klein's saying how do you how do you evangelize anyone when you've got to kill the unbeliever? You know, <laughs> it just doesn't seem to work. And he'd be like, no, we only kill the unbeliever once everyone agrees that this law should be instituted. You know, so we're all about evangelism until we become the majority. You know, then it's like about the Muslims. Just killing. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, exactly. And um, and so I'm giving a you know oversimplified form there and you know i'm probably making some theonomous mad somewhere but but you know that's effectively the problem he gives some lip service to us but he undoes the whole thing you know in terms of the, the the major because now the emphasis of the church needs to be not evangelism but but uh really the high point there is is um the cultural success of of, of that evangelism and um as client one of the things that client says that i think is so good is that it effectively diminishes the work of the spirit over 2000 years of the work of church history and the persecuted church. It's almost like saying, well, evangelism yeah. has failed, you know, unless it has led to that cultural high, high point for yeah. 2000 years, it, it hasn't done its job yeah. when, um, especially when the church is, is suffering. Yeah. Following yes. Christ and his humiliation is not a good it's path. Obliterated. Don't, yeah. As goes yeah. the king, so goes the kingdom. Bad mm -hmm. path. Don't do that. Yeah.
Yeah. Um, I've heard Todd Bordeaux say that they separate the pre-resurrection um, ministry of Christ uh, f- from the post-resurrection or ascension ministry of Christ, uh, you know, it, on that exact point in that we're suffering, you know, we're, we're meant to suffer, follow him in his earthly uh, humiliation and suffering uh, all the way through, you know, not only before he was uh, resurrected. Um, and so just because he is in glory now, it doesn't change the fact that, that we follow him the way the disciples were to follow him before and after. Um, so anyways, um, you know, just wrapping it up more uh, to coming to the main point. Yeah. I've looked at the, I'm not going to have time to go through the, the big um, spiel on, um, on the biblical theological analysis. Um, but effectively, you know, the, the thing there is that I've landed on the fact that if you look at the text from beginning to end, there is just no doubt that there must be some level of discontinuity with, to do with the cultural mandate. Uh, so that's in favor of what Klein is allowed for. Uh, secondly, you, you've got this eschatological thing going on from the introduction of the Sabbath in Genesis 2. Mm. And, you know, this is, I think you can show very convincingly that was, that was eschatological from the beginning, which has so much bearing on the situation because it means that the goal was never just to develop the creation and keep on developing it. And w- with no eschatology in view, the, the goal of, of what Adam had to do uh, it, certainly under the covenant of works, but you know, in, in terms of its cultural um, piece was to develop culture with eschatology in view to enter into a glory where that job was complete, so to speak. And, um, and if that is the case, you know, th- this, this almost necessitates on its own right uh, that you can't have a continuationist view of, of the cultural mandate because um, you know, Adam has failed in that task. Uh, what is that task? It's an eschatological task. You know uh, we can't, we can't do that. Christ has done that. And if the task is eschatological and Christ has done that, he has brought us into rest. He has achieved everything that, that, that ultimately Adam was supposed to do. Uh, then this means that, you know, it almost we're, 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 there's just no possibility of us picking up anything that Adam had left off. You know, uh, you yeah. can only think in those categories if you think in terms of a continuous building project. Um, and so I think that's significant and it lands in favor of Klein. One of the things that brought some tension and critique of Klein was that, you know, the cultural mandate involved procreation. Um, it wasn't just to uh, master and, and, and build, but it was to procreate in full and create a new, new, new humanity. So on the one hand, Christ sees that very much fulfilled. The seed motif is fulfilled in, in, in Christ after the fall. He is the one now, the new creation, the, the one who's uh, the, the, any any um, procreation mandate from the fall onwards leads to Christ um, specifically. He's all about that, but he has some tension in his theology in that he wants to leave a place for the covenant family to have some role in its sanctifying of culture via the creation of a cultural product, namely children who will enter into glory. It sort of defies his whole system otherwise. And he himself sort of acknowledges that it's a bit of an exception to the rule. But, um, you know, that's one thing that um, I haven't gone with in my biblical um, theology and uh, that chapter. And so it's sort of, we're arriving there at different positions. And and what's interesting is that the Davidians challenge the two kingdom pedo-baptists on this point. They say it's impossible to categorize things in terms of sacred and secular when it comes to the covenant family because the cultural product of the covenant family is blurred 
with the holy product of those who will enter into glory. And uh, it's a great example of uh, the creation of a cultural product that is common with unbelievers, mm. yet that is holy uh, at the same time. And so to the so degree- Two Kingdoms they, has a Baptist DNA. Well, it, you know, it, it, interesting. Yeah, that's a very, very, um, again, probably future research thing, but it's, um, it's, it's something that I don't see can be avoided altogether. There is the possibility, for example, that, that someone can work out how you can speak of the covenant family in a way that's categorized properly and differently. And I think Klein probably came the closest to doing that. You know, he speaks of it as a covenantal holiness rather than a, uh, a eschatological holiness, you know? So he's, yeah. he's, he's tried to separate those two as, as far as possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, it fits very well with Baptist DNA. Let's put it that way. We don't have to sweat on that point at all is, no. um, is one thing to point out. So Mike, in your, just in your research, looking at Klein, I mean, are there, points where you've maybe found you come to disagree with them more or come to agree with them more and then a follow-on question was you know how have you know those who've taken up Klein's mantle sort of advanced Klein perhaps yeah. even outdone him and, and maybe fine-tuned some of the aspects of his theology that that he didn't develop yeah totally uh all the natural law stuff is beyond Klein so that's Van Drunen and you know Klein didn't even touch the subject and it's not even entirely sure that he had a natural law um category in the same way that van drunen does um certainly it works you know uh, but it's it's just beyond what, what he yeah what so he, common grace and natural law have a lot of overlap they yeah. can do a lot of work for each other exactly but you know do you want to for example you know say that the moral law uh, you know is you know as, as one typically does the moral law uh in common grace is the the effective equivalent of the ten commandments you know and frame points out well how do you not get to theonomy if you do that? Because the first four commandments are all about, you know, uh, obeying God and worshiping. And so if that's, if you'd almost, you'd have to be restricted to the last of the six commandments uh, as being the moral law. And it just gets, it's just a tricky question that has a lot of implications. So, um, you know, Klein doesn't deal with that directly, but, you know, Van Drunen in, in terms of the way he advances the Noahic covenant, and this is the, the all, and all therefore yeah. he's all he's using client from beginning to end to do that um but you know you, this brings into the, the final sort of evaluation and the most exciting part of the project and let's just kind of wrap up here because this is where my my thoughts have still got to be solidified and uh, you know I'll, I'll leave anyone who wants to who wants to go ahead and, and read the evaluation in great detail to to find the dissertation when it's done uh or maybe we'll come back to it at a future episode but but one of the exciting things that i think that i have no idea going into this um well, actually, two things. Um, firstly, you know, on a negative side, with with Klein, uh, some people have read that critique that Garrett wrote against Klein. The theonomists bring um, uh, out the point that Klein makes too much reliance on ancient Near Eastern treaties, and uh, brings it into his, you know, too much makes it bear too much weight. Uh, his covenant theology just leans on that too much, and. Um, and so, you know, they're I arguing. For, I felt that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think. Especially when he's commenting on the New Testament and trying to suggest covenantal readings of the New Testament as a suzerainty treaty. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. Well, that's where it gets, it, that's where it gets crazy. And that's what Garrett picked up on. He was like, well, you know, he's using a lot of what he found there with, um, let's say, applied rightly or to some degree to Abraham and to thinking about the way that that worked. But as soon as you start bringing that through to baptism, and he did, I mean, this was his big push to bring it. Bonson doesn't critique him on this, but Garrett sort of advances the same critique in saying that when, when Klein 
gets to the point of of reinterpreting the New Testament signs, even on on Baptist grounds, um, uh, based on the ancient Near Eastern treaties that, that you have. Uh, it's not about a covenant promise anymore. It's about uh, you know submitting yourself to the suzerain. It's about trusting yourself to his judgment. And then you know as the suzerain would require of the vessel, you would bring all in your household to you know anyone under your authority. Wow. So the household authority principle starts taking this new ancient Near Eastern sort of uh, dimension to it. And as Garrett points out, you know there is no real reason why Constantinianism is wrong if that's true, because you know he <laughs> was against the, the whole project, yeah. right? Which is interesting that 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 defies the the. It's not what what Bonson critiqued Klein on, but it really would have helped Bonson to know that uh, if he if he knew Garrett's critique back in the day, and um, and uh, you know I think Klein has defended himself obviously, and you know he he says well like one of the things he says is we've got to keep family and judicial things separate even on you know we're not talking about a, a civil you know authority but as garrett garrett points out you know you've got in the roman uh understanding of a family there was there was very slippery uh, as to what is judicial and what is what is family i mean the the, the slaves, media, slaves. Yeah. yeah i mean you know the, the father the head of the father had the power of life and death legally you know so it was it was almost one and the same thing and um it just becomes a very slippery slope at that point yeah um, but what I've concluded is, even if Garrett's right on that point, uh, well, he, he at least, uh, as Bill said, he has struck at the, some of the, 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 the periphery issues of course, uh, Klein's system, but he hasn't touched Klein's core system. And I think that's true because, because Klein himself almost makes a distinct argument for that. You know, everything he borrows from the ancient Near Eastern treaties or gives insight to lands on exegesis at the end of the day. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't reinterpret things based on, <laughs> on ancient Near Eastern treaties. The only time he does, in my opinion, step into that turf is when he looks at the, the Pedobaptist reinterpretation. Um, but so thankfully, that's left his core system in place. And uh, even if he can be critiqued on an inconsistency or a tension or, you know, whatever these guys have brought out, um, that's that's all that can ever be an inconsistency or tension in his thought. Um, but his core system is, you know, you might even say it doesn't necessitate at all that you hold to his covenant signs uh, reinterpretation. Yeah. It, it, it even might even have a Baptist DNA in there, not to offend anyone who's listening to this, who's not Baptist, but that, that's basically how it works. You know, it's, it, there's something distinct about his core system. Beale acknowledged that uh, I think rightly. And, um, and, you know, the other thing, that um, comes through, yeah, which I think hasn't been touched on at all, which I'm quite excited about. And I hope this will spur some future research is that when Klein was thinking about himself and his discussions with David on, on culture, he was thinking about the legitimacy of the common grace city. He was thinking about whether, um, you know, this is to be equated with uh, the church and the kingdom. And, and he, and, you know, he dealt with this monism issue head on. And he showed very concretely that uh, that you have there is no way you can be a monist and account for the biblical data. You've got the doctrine of hell to contend with, you know. So at very at very minimum, the intermediate state or hell demands some level of of, of duality in God's Separation. reign. Yeah, yeah. You, 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 it's a response to sin. God is certainly Lord over all. But it's not everything. Hell is not the kingdom of God. I think everyone can agree on that. And yet it's not beyond the reign of God either. Yeah. So, you know, just, just at that final level in response to sin, you have to be able to, it's just not enough to, you need some duality. 
But what he did, though, in, in um, arguing that way was really trying to amend a, a Kuyperian approach to worldview and covenant theology. In other words, he wasn't going, okay, well, therefore, I'm a two kingdom guy. You know, he was just going, I'm a Kuyperian. I'm thankful for Kuyperianism. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I really love Doyavid. He even imbibes his structure direction distinction, which is a whole thing on its own. Uh, you know, he doesn't even disagree with him on that which is huge. That is neo-Calvinism in many ways. Um, and, and yet he's going, but we just need to not be so driven by philosophical abstraction and worry about yeah. uh, scholasticism because ironically we're becoming that if we go down this road, we've, we've given preeminence to, to uh, philosophy over, over the scripture. And so, uh, you know, let's just tweak it. Let's tweak the model and allow for a greater eschatology, allow for more uh, duality and common grace and, retain the integrity that Dovid longed for in this in this one harmonious view of God's covenantal dealings in the kingdom you know which Klein obviously I mean the whole kingdom prologue is subtitled you know, covenantal world worldview you know it's 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 really to world give yeah. it's really to give what Kuiper always wanted and and uh, to um, give what Dovid was shooting for there so anyways um, all to say that if 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 you acknowledge that what you start seeing is that Actually, yes, Klein provides a substructure for the Reform Two Kingdom project, but he also provides a substructure for a lot of neo-Calvinistic thought, uh, a certain kinds of neo-Calvinistic thought. So it's true that he's not going to allow for theonomists in there, and it's true that he's not going to allow for perspectivalists. But there are many Dovidians that hold to if they've got an eschatological, if they've kept themselves from moving in overly triumphalistic directions, if they've given a proper place to eschatology, then they probably are, are totally in step with Klein. And he actually, he's got enough nuance at the substructural level to incorporate both views, yeah. which totally destroys the use of labels at that point, because now it's not about two kingdoms and uh, neo-Calvinism. It's about almost a, a eschatology and not eschatology or a, um, a, you know, common grace and not common grace or something along those lines. Um, and, you know, you see, you see all sorts of uh, possibilities for, yeah. for future discussions. So Klein would allow for people to work as politicians, to build Christian schools, to well, yeah. you know, get I mean, involved the, in cultural projects, not in the name of the gospel, but in the name of common grace. Yeah, I mean, think about it. it. It's almost like he takes the lid right off of the cosmonomic task. So let's say you wanted to go full-scale cosmonomic cosmonomology you you're, you're you're a philosopher let's just like go let's go right to the heart of the beast there you're a philosopher and you want to be a doyavidian you know you love his whole approach you want to create a thoroughly awesome you know uh, a christian worldview on every conceivable thing on the deepest possible levels of, of philosophy and build it up discovering these uh, these uh, inherent principles of the cosmos and and creation and um and, and then you think oh i really want to be a kleinian as well the only limitation on you is that you're going to be understanding that that the maximum that your that your work in building that 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 cultural task can take you is something penultimate. It's it's it it, it is important. It is a, there is a mandate. There is something to uh, that works for the for the in the purposes of God to ameliorate, to assist, to. Um, to preserve, to you know, uh, glorify God, to all of these things, but it's just simply not going to ever do 
the thing that that Adam it's not was eschatological. supposed to do. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't have the eschatological ceiling on it. And so, you know, I think there's one example of how just that simple point. So it's almost like you could adapt the ground motive of you know Doevet's famous um, uh, creation, fall, redemption ground motive to creation, fall, common grace, redemption, eschatology ground motive. So if you're willing to bring all of those pieces in there. You know, you can work as a Doyavedian without problem. So I think a lot of, and what's interesting is a lot of Doyavedians are willing to do that. You know, you can see in their interactions, for example, um, um, there was a recent um, uh, grouping of essays published where you see they're all, well, maybe redemption isn't the best word for what we're doing. And, <laughs> you know, and maybe it really? is a little triumphalistic. And even like uh, Smith, you know, um, he's, he's, you know, well, I've got to admit it gets a little draconian. <laughs> here and there you know we've got we've got all these examples south africa and so forth where where things uh, the puritan experiment where it's just a little bit uh, out of hand and so we need a lid we need to find a way to to, to bring Save that them lid. chance yeah exactly and so i think klein could actually might even give them a lid to be the, the neo-calvinist they want to be which is um an interesting development so anyways um you start seeing people challenge the labels and i think now it gives us a substructural you know if people focus on that little bit of interaction between Dovet and Klein, that it'll give them more of a substructural way to approach the question rather than just uh, trying to work it through semantics. Because semantics tends to be a bit of a dead end, you know. In fact, we all know that, you know, you call it redemption, I call it this, what do we mean? No one really cares. Yeah. But but what we all, we want to know that we're on the same page ultimately, which we usually can arrive to at, at via painful discussions on semantic, uh, semantics. But if you just kill all of that and go to the substructure, it's like everyone agrees. And we know that even if we're using a different word, we're ultimately, we have that eschatological ceiling, so to speak, yeah. or lid or boundary. We have the cultic boundary. Um, and there are many other ways you could uh, approach it as well. So anyways, let me drop it there and um, stop talking because that I think is Sounds getting good. on in time. Ooh, <laughs> this is going to be a longy. It's a good one. It's good maybe, one. I should, maybe we should do two parts. Do you think we should do two parts? Well, the next time you do a PhD, we can do another long one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, it's good. It's so helpful, though. I mean, to to think about what it means to live in the the already and the not yet and in the overlap of the ages. Like it is, it's crazy, crazy helpful. Because if you start thinking, confusing the categories of, you know, what has eternal significance and what has temporal significance and what is for this life now and what is for the life later, and you start confusing those things and everything starts to go to pot. And mm. I mean, church mission um, is, is a key example of that. Yeah. But it's just about maintaining that kind of focus and that priority. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you go back pre-Constantine and you look at the early church there and how, how much detachment from the world there is and how that all turns around during Constantine, mm. you know, and then it kind of survives a little bit through the monks. Mm, and mm. Um, through the ascetics but um you know we're in real danger if we start yeah if we start confusing those two two groups and it sounds like it sounds like if you it sounds like Klein is providing a way for the for the best of all emphases to be able to do that without making yeah. any massive errors yeah, you know, of confusing those categories. Yeah, exactly. What I'd love to see is us coming to grips with the definitions, Klein, Klein helping us to get there. And then we can stop fighting about definitions and actually get on to talking about what constructive Christian witness looks like. Exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. being salt yeah. and light, loving yeah. your neighbor, not mm -hmm. mixing up with the Great Commission and actually, you know, 
taking a positive spin on things without having to constantly yeah. revert back to fighting about the definitions. Exactly. It's almost like if you've just got these clear lines, everyone can just relax, you know, and, and yeah. call it with, if everyone can just agree with the boundaries, where the boundaries are. Um, mm. it, but, you know, what's interesting is you see so much of that unity already without, even though they're talking past each other, um, for example, they, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll there'll be this, um, there's a few exchanges between Van Drunen and uh, some of the neo-Calvinists that are almost humorous on the, on this point, because they're closer saying, and closer and closer. I mean, they're saying <laughs> exactly the same thing. And then they conclude by saying, and this is why I don't believe in either neo-Calvinism or to, you know, as if, as if they've said something profoundly different, you know, and then every now and again, someone will pop their head up and, and say, but um, hang on, didn't you, isn't that exactly what I believe? And, you know, it, but it's like one little semantic uh, grenade there that, that throws them off or, or does something else. And often it's just a, a it's really, it comes down to almost a, a degree of preference, a place in the person's life. Like one will be a yeah. seminary teacher. The other one will be a history professor. So they're dealing with two different sort of contexts and you can see they're trying to just develop the same point in different ways. Um, you know, one will be a pastor worried about the church and its mission. One will be a, a Christian in a, a very secular field, uh, politics and, and yeah, um, the American context. Everyone's got that in the everyone's background. Everyone's got that going on as well. So yeah, you've got to, you've got to, um, it, it becomes a, just a real headache to talk about this you know, I mean, how could it's almost impossible to do that and give enough space to everyone for their various preferences, unless you have, um, unless you have a clear boundary. If everyone's going to agree, for example, that, um, hey, you know, when we, you know, when we receive Jesus's words to go and make disciples, he does not mean have babies. You know, that, that's just not what he's saying. He's not saying have as many babies as you can and make your family as big as it, it can be. That is not going to do it. You know, if everyone can just land on that, even if they have a place for the covenant family, you know, like so Klein does that. He gives a yeah. strong place for a holy covenant family. Um, yet there's something distinguished to, to what is being called for there in the Great Commission. And that call to have lots of babies was, in fact, the cultural mandate of Genesis uh, one, so, you know, there is a difference there. And so, you know, if you just land on that <laughs> or, or um, you know, if we could all just land on the fact that Adam's task had an eschatological goal. So we all agree you either have to be a post-millennialist or not, you know, and th th there's, that's how that rolls out. You know, I think immediately that, that discussion becomes a lot clearer because everyone goes, well, I'm not a post-millennialist. I'm not either, you know, we're all saying essentially the same thing. We're using different labels for it. Um, and yeah, it just becomes a, a friendlier place, I think. Yeah. Awesome, good. Sounds well, good, thank Mike. You. Thank you. Yeah, man. For, Thanks uh, for doing, doing that work. No, Look forward to reading the whole thing. Oh boy, yeah, totally. Um, I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, listening. And um, the uh, if anyone does have any questions about that, feel free to hit me up on on all of that stuff. Um, the more questions, the merrier. It's right in my headspace right now. Um, but uh, we will maybe, you know, if we find an opportunity to do this in the future where we maybe through another channel get to an interesting point that I've covered, I'll try and come back and bring some of this mm, in rather, yeah. rather than just, uh, you know, keep it floating. Um, <clears throat> cool. But anyways, let's drop it there. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Sweet. Cheers. Awesome. Cheers. Uh,